Welcome to Roots of Resilience on the front lines of climate justice, a podcast by the Global Forest Coalition. GFC is a feminist coalition of organizations around the world supporting forest conservation with a focus on gender justice, human rights, and social equity. In Roots of Resilience, we talk with coalition members and allies about what they're doing to advance real solutions to climate change and forest loss. In today's episode, you'll hear host Chitira Vijayakumar interview three GFC team members who are doing important work in the defense of forests. Climate change is one of the most hotly debated topics in today's world. But interestingly, in some ways, it is also one of the most neglected stories of our time. This is because while lots of energy and resources are being spent on arguing that climate change isn't real, vastly less attention is paid to the fact that climate change is not something that might happen in the future, but rather it is happening now and it is currently devastating many parts of the world. I'm Chitira Vijayakumar and I'm speaking from India, where as I record this, a record-breaking heat wave has been scorching us and our neighbours in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh and several Southeast Asian countries for the last two months. Interestingly, at the same time last year, these same places were being devastated by catastrophic floods that left thousands dead and millions displaced. This is only one example of how the reality of what is happening around the planet is rarely reflected in global climate change discourse and policy spaces. We at GFC are taking a closer look at some of the most well-known so-called solutions to climate change, deforestation and biodiversity loss. Because when we speak to climate, forest and land defenders from all around the world, who are the people most impacted by climate change, They say that the solutions currently being pushed in policymaking spaces, like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the UN Convention on Biological Diversity at the global level, as false solutions. Why are they false solutions? And in that case, what are the real solutions? In this episode, we are going to meet three experts who have decades of experience in climate change policy, advocacy, and organizing. First, we will go to Togo to meet Kwame Kaponzo. Could you tell us a little bit about where you're coming to us from today and what it looks like around you? Thank you, Shitira. I'm joined from Lome, Togo, West Africa. Uh, I'm right now uh, in my office. Uh, the sun is up, bright, very bright. Kwame coordinates the Global Forest Coalition's Extractive Industries, Tourism and Infrastructure Campaign. He is also the Executive Director of the Centre for Environmental Justice in Togo, which is a non-profit which fights for environmental, social and gender justice. They help defend the rights of communities whose livelihoods and ways of life are being threatened by climate change. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the false solutions that are particularly affecting your region? In Africa, the first solutions that we are facing it mostly is plantations offsetting and uh, they are very much impacting communities if i may start with uh, plantations we have uh, industrial plantations uh, we have uh, monoculture plantations like uh, uh, 
uh, eucalyptus, eucalyptus where uh, some companies come to take uh, land in Mozambique, for instance, we have Portusel, Portusel uh, that's uh, uh, conducting uh, uh, economic activity there with a huge uh, amount of land with eucalyptus, destroying livelihoods of communities. As I said, eucalyptus is a dangerous uh, species that uh, uh, withdraw water uh, in the soil. And the space where communities uh, used to have uh, agriculture is being taken by, by the company. That is first. Second, displacement. Displacement is something that destroys totally the, the livelihood of community because they, they are displaced from uh, where the livelihood sources are to another place and it generates conflict because they're going somewhere they don't know and they are mingled with other people. And those people who were there before also are angry because they don't want to, to share their resources with uh, the displaced uh, people. So it generates conflicts. And uh, apart from that, uh, you see clearly that uh, the monoculture plantations is uh, affecting households. The whole village is destroyed. The whole village is taken because of uh, uh, commercial activities with uh, one company. Instead, uh, the government should protect the people, but if you check the relationship clearly, the government have a broken relationship with, uh, with communities and uh, uh, government is more friendly with, uh, with companies. And it's all over. It's all over Africa. If you go to uh, South Africa, for instance, there is a, a, a huge uh, biomass power plants and monoculture plantations is there to feed the biomass power plants. And same thing happening with communities in South Africa, displacement, uh, uh, destruction of uh, uh, source of livelihood because land has been taken from, uh, from communities. In Nigeria, you see also in Nigeria, Ghana, Côte d'Ivoire, you see uh, monoculture plantations, uh, especially palm oil or oil palm plantations, uh, where communities are denied to go to their to their farm because if you see the the plantations, the plantations occupy the road where communities used to pass to to go to uh, their farm. So it's restricted area. Uh, women are mostly impacted because in Africa, uh, women are uh, the one who use mostly lands to to cultivate. They go to uh, to the farm to have to harvest uh, some uh, uh, woods uh, for uh, uh, energy, and uh, they are very much impacted. And uh, what I've seen in Liberia was shocking. In Liberia. Uh, one of the area, Joba clan, if you go there, if you want to go to some of the communities, is surrounded by uh, palm oil plantations. And the company fixed a gate. And if you want to go to that community, you have to show your ID. 
your ID card. Even if you are from Liberia, you show your ID card. You prove that you are going to that community. That's very shocking. So what are we saying if we say those plantations are solutions to climate change and it are affecting more communities? Then it's not a solution. Then it's not a solution. If communities cannot go to their own places, if communities cannot go to their to their farm, and you are saying that you are bringing solutions to climate change, then it's not a solution actually. Actually, the situation you are describing is, in fact, sounds like a continuation of a colonial project. It's like a new colonial project where local communities no longer have any agency over the lands on which they have lived on since time immemorial. They no longer sound like they have any say in what happens to um, the water, uh, what to cultivate, how um, life will progress there because now the land suddenly belongs to somebody else. That sounds like a frightening situation. And it's from what you're saying, it's all over Africa um, and the problem is getting worse. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you mentioned how um, women in all the diversities are some of the most severely impacted in this process through these very severe social, cultural um, and economic changes. Um, you mentioned how women used to have um, access to farmlands and they used to be able to grow food and be wage earners. So can you tell us a little bit more about how gender dynamics are also changing in these regions? Yeah, uh, as I said before, uh, women uh, are mostly impacted by uh, climate change, by first solutions of climate change. And uh, uh, youths are also impacted because uh, in, in Africa, most of the youth and women, they have uh, in their mind to have a, a small land to cultivate. Uh, but uh, because of uh, those uh, projects, because of uh, the plantations, because of uh, red projects, those four solutions that uh, taking land from, uh, from people, uh, people move from their communities to the town. Uh, but in the town, uh, it's difficult for them to get, uh, to get job. So uh, it's very important to highlight this because uh, it's happening everywhere in Africa. People move from the village to the town, hoping that uh, if they uh, get to the town, they will have uh, a better job. So why they are coming to the town, they, that, that I was explaining, that uh, uh, they don't have... Uh, any more interest in the village because their land has been taken from uh, their father. Uh, they, they were displaced, so they have to, to, to seek their way. So having that said, uh, even in the villages where uh, those projects are happening, those uh, first solutions projects are happening, you see clearly that uh, uh, women are left uh, behind because uh, men 
are the one mostly uh, picked by the company to work. And if they are working, they work hard. The men work hard, but they paid less. And if the men uh, were taken away from their family uh, to their company field, you believe with me that uh, the children and we, the the woman, uh, they are left alone in 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 in, in home, and the charge or the load of children is upon upon the the woman then. So uh, the 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 struggle uh, to get uh, uh, food to 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 kids to to children, and if those projects also destroy the livelihoods of the communities, then the source of income also is gone, then it's difficult for the family to, to pay the school fees for, 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 for children to go to school. Uh, so the income is low. So it's becoming difficult for families or for communities to, uh, to do, uh, to live in decent way. Uh, so this is uh, second. Third is that, uh, the uh this one i will give i'll give uh one example uh with uh with uh nigeria one of the nigeria projects where uh it's happening in ukumu, ukumu, ukumu community in nigeria where the uh, communities are protesting against uh the restrictions areas that uh, the companies uh, uh put in place uh what happened is that the companies called for police or military and uh, they shoot the, the the communities that are that are protesting that's that is the situation in africa with those four solutions the description you gave is very important because a lot of the times when we hear the word plantation um we don't realize what that what it really means is the mobilizing the state power, all of the state's power, including often the military or the police or other paramilitary forces against indigenous peoples and small communities, local communities. Uh, often the word plantation is not equivalent. We don't equate that with this, um, this sort of machinery that is being, like you said, used against the people. But that's the reality is what I'm hearing from your response. So, and so this leads really nicely to the ne next question, which is, so far, we've sort of been talking in the abstract. We say, you know, this plantation or this false solution project sort of just appeared in these communities. But who are these people and what is the machinery that enables uh, these false solutions? Where do they start? Um, who are some of the people behind it? Who are some of the organizations behind it? The main, the main uh, channel that are promoting those false solutions is the uh, UNFCCC uh, spaces where the negotiations are taking place, negotiations on climate change are taking place. Uh, what happened or what, what is happening there in that space, particularly that space, is that uh, uh, instead of giving uh, the, the voice to uh, communities who are uh, impacted to speak, they don't give that voice to communities. And uh, what uh, is going on there is you see the government mainly uh, and uh, the uh, private sector and the 
the, the private sector is there and the representative of uh, multinationals uh, are, are also uh, there associated with uh, the private sector. So um, they promote their own projects. They promote what can benefit them. If you had the attention of world leaders for one minute and they had to listen to you, what you said, and they had to implement it, what would you tell them? What would your message to them be? Yes, the world leaders, they, they become leaders because of communities, people, because of citizens, because of people, the people elect them. So they they should listen to people. They have to listen to people. They are there as the leaders to serve people, not to destroy the livelihood of people. So what I'm telling them now is to hear what people are saying. We don't want to sell our land. We don't want to sell our forests. We want to live in harmony with nature. So leaders should hear that. Collective interest is better than individual interest. So leaders, please, we elect you to be there to serve the collective interest, not only your pockets, but please hear our voices, hear, hear us as we are speaking. We don't want to sell our land. We want a better life. We want to live in healthy environments. That is my message to the leaders. Thank you, Shitira. Thank you so much, Kwame, for sharing your ideas and experiences with us today. Now, listeners, uh, we're going to take you to a different continent to meet Soparna Lahiri, who is joining us from Calcutta in India. Soparna is the Senior Climate and Biodiversity Policy Advisor for GFC. Suparna, I've heard you speak in earlier instances about the need to demystify the concept of false solutions. Could you tell us a little bit about why that is important? You know, Chitira, nowadays um, there is so much confusion around this term called false solutions. And I really feel for those uh, people, the frontline communities who are affected by climate change and every day they are looking forward to a kind of how one can overcome this crisis, how one can look forward for a more certain future, future generations, you know, and does not have to live a life like, oh, the next day it will be heavy rains. What will happen after that? A storm is coming. Right now in Calcutta, we have a storm or cyclone coming uh, next week. What will happen then? What will be the impact of that storm? Or somewhere down in the US or somewhere down in Africa, you know, a drought, a hurricane. Now, this for this, the life is becoming very, very uncertain. And for those where you, you have their livelihood depending so much on land. What is there on the land? What is there on the water? How the climate is changing? What is the weather pattern? Everything is now affecting uh, 
those people who are in the front lines, who are the communities on the ground and their livelihood. And so this whole climate mitigation and the terminology is coming out of here, like false solutions, real solutions, zero, net zero, it's becoming increasingly confusing. And that's not good. We actually want to demystify and, and let the correct uh, scenario, the correct terminologies reach with all its correct meaning to the right people. So at present, what I personally prefer, when I say what is a false solution to me, if you ask, I say that the IPCC in its report have clearly said that we are reaching the tipping point. We are very close to the tipping point, which is 1.5 degrees Celsius. And by 2030, we need to reduce our GHG emissions by half, 50%, to keep around 1.5 and not get over that tipping point. And so any solution, any climate action or solution that does not contribute to reduction of GHG emission by 50% by 2030 is a false solution to me today. Um, one term that I've heard a lot, come up a lot in, in these discussions is the term divestment. Mm. What can you tell us about this idea? Um, is it a solution? Is it a false solution? What is the story there? I think divestment has been has come out in terms of you know specific uh, sectoral issues, and uh, it is being focused more towards the banking finance sector, like divest from coal mine from financing coal mining or thermal power plant or divest from right now the campaign is going on uh, from factory farming you know or divest from uh, financing something else what we are kind of trying to uh, tell now and this will be our main focus while going into bond is divestment from false solutions which essentially means that any public finance that promotes in any way a false solutions needs to be divested, needs to be stopped. So divest from promoting false solutions. Because in climate finance, as you know, the climate finance is something which we are struggling for almost the last 15 years. Uh, Referring, I can refer to that $100 billion pledge of climate finance from the developed north to the south, which has not materialized. And now we are hearing that, you know, there wouldn't be enough climate finance if the private sector or the private finance does not add up to it. But we know that the public finance has been used both and hugely in the global north and also in some of the middle income and middle income developing countries in the south 
to promote solutions which does not contribute to climate action. The simple thing, the amount, the billions of dollars that go to plantations, planting monoculture trees from bilateral funds in Europe to World Bank to, uh, you know, the Jeff, uh, which is the main funding agency for CBD-related uh, decisions, so global environmental facility. The financing which has come out for promoting bond declaration uh, in re restoring forests and restoring ecosystems. The UN decade, which is now from 2020 to 2030, promoting re reforestation. This is all public money, public finance, which has been promoting this kind of false solutions. Even if you see, go to Red Plus, whether it's a whether it turned into a carbon offset, whether it's a reserve-based payment as piloted by the Green Climate Fund. But Red Plus to us is essentially a false solution, not a solution to reduce deforestation and conserve forest. And Red Plus readiness has been funded from Sweden, Norway, Germany, UK, France, a lot of these rich European na nations for, uh, for almost the last 12 to 13 years in Amazon, in tropical forests in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Now the Green Climate Fund is promoting Red Plus and the finance essentially is public finance. Then, then we have Green Climate Fund uh, promoting plantations through private sector players like the Arboro Fund. An Arboro Fund, the Green Climate Fund has contributed 25% of the entire budgeted proposal as an equity just to de-risk the private finance that is coming into Arboro Fund. And this is completely towards the fault solutions. Another round of monoculture plantations contributing to timber harvesting bioenergy. And so increasingly, we are seeing that public finance started promoting this kind of solutions. And now what they're saying that add private sector to it and private sector will never come. Private finance will never come unless you deal it through public finance. So public finance is guilty of promoting false solutions. And we just want to reiterate that in our campaign and say, divest public finance from false solutions. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So demanding a more comprehensive divestment than just divesting from individual, like divesting from fossil fuels, divest from, um, you know, yes. piecemeal yes. divestments, but to divest from anything and everything that contributes um, to climate change, worsening climate yeah. change. Okay, that yes. is that is loud and clear. Um, when we say that there are false solutions, uh, it implies that there are false real solutions. 
can you tell us in your in your decades of experience um what is a real solution to climate change that you've seen that really sticks with you that's really been a powerful response to the existing scenario you know we we say we are increasingly talking of real solutions but it's 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 not a very straightforward kind of a discourse when we say real look towards real solutions what the communities are doing what the communities are thinking how their traditional practices and you know wisdom traditional wisdom contribute to what they are today how they are fighting climate change how they are being resilient increasingly uh, from the kind of uh, impacts and effects of climate change but you know you need enablers real real solutions to some extent are practiced for centuries by the indigenous people all that they do kind of contribute to real solutions the way they conserve their forest the way their livelihood is entwined with nature and conservation the amount of regulation that they themselves follow within their community in terms of extracting things from the forest extracting things from nature to balance the the amount that they barely need for their living everyday life and the livelihood is something which actually contributes today if we see that to the real solutions we are talking of the best example would be the agroecological practices these are real solutions uh on on the issue of food systems and ag- agriculture that is facing a huge crisis and industrial agriculture contributes a lot to climate crisis but we should we have to go through a process of enabling these real solutions and enabling these real solutions means a real struggle to decolonize the whole land sector the whole ecosystem the forest the way the colonizing powers have appropriated the natural resources that were in the domain of the communities for centuries and the communities had their collective and individual rights over the natural resources have all been vanquished by the colonizer state and they became the property of the state and so now in terms of we are talking of climate solutions we are talking of communities we are talking of climate solutions exist on the ground but these communities doesn't have the right to participate decision making planning of these solutions they don't have the right to be part of the governance even in the in the land sector in forest in agriculture land or even pastoral land as well so the first thing is to restore the rights of the indigenous people and in many areas the local communities so that they not only become a part of the decision making planning but they are part 
essentially of the governance mechanism. And governance is essential for any kind of climate solution today, specifically real solutions on the ground. And so we need to see that increasing number of the nation states are restoring the rights of the IPLCs, the rights of women, women access to land, recognizing women's contribution to forest conservation and restoration. And these are some of the enablers. And these are also some of the ways and actions moving towards real solutions to really let the communities practice, find, and implement the real solutions. Right now, I would talk less of what the communities would think of real solutions. But I know that these enablers are essential when we talk of moving towards real solutions and real zero. One example I gave you is right in front of us that is being you know, talked about a lot, which is the agroecological practices. And then resilience, the climate resilience that the communities practice, and we are seeing it in, in front of us, how they are fighting climate change with uh, resilience. But essentially, we need to restore their rights. We need to recognize women's contribution. We need to uh, have action on gender equality. We need to have uh, women's access to land and women's participation in governance where the IPLCs are also part of the governance. A self-governance may mechanism of the IPLCs and with a kind of a quorum or majority uh, of dividing the share of governance between men and women uh, will be kind of enablers to move towards real solution. Absolutely. And I think at this juncture, it's important to note that many of these false solutions actually weaken uh, even the existing, uh, whatever existing control that uh, indigenous peoples and local communities have over their lands and sovereignty to live their lives, uh, their lives the way that they would like to. So we're really, um, that, I think that the points you mentioned are really key, Sabrina. Our final visit for this episode is to Andrea Echeverri, who's from Colombia. She's a feminist and environmental organizer and has dedicated the last 12 years of her life to environmental justice, mainly in Colombia and Latin America. Andrea is currently the coordinator of GSC's Unsustainable Lifestyle Campaign. Andrea, hello and welcome to the pod. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you approach the concept of false solutions to climate change in your work? Well, hi everyone, I'm really glad to say hello to everyone from Colombia. I live in a little village called Guarne, that's nearby Medellin, the second main city from Colombia. We're located in the Andean wide range, mountain range, sorry. Uh, so we're surrounded by forests, what's left of them actually, with people who have really interesting connections with the with the land and from a really beautiful place I'm talking to you right now. I get to see the birds, I get to see the forests, I get to listen to a little creek nearby. So I feel pretty connected with the topic that we're discussing right now. 
Well, I feel like when we're talking about climate crisis, we're not only talking really about climate. We're not talking only about emissions. We're talking of a symptom of a comprehensive crisis of a, of a civilization model. I, that is, we have a water crisis, we have a food crisis, we have an environmental crisis, and we also have the climate crisis. So if everything's going wrong, basically, in our system, it's because the system itself, it's not working. So we can't ask the system itself to solve the problems that it has caused itself. And when I'm talking about the system, I'm talking, that might sound cliche or something, but when I'm talking about the system, I'm talking about taking into account the main issues, the main causes of um, the, the state we're at, the state of, I don't know, of global panic because the world's going to an end, we're heading to the apocalypse of something because you can hear sometimes things like that. But you can't just keep saying that we are all on the same ship and everything because that is true. But there's also something that, ha that has to be taken into account, and that's the principle of common but differentiated responsibility responsibilities. That's it. We can't blame someone who lives in the Colombian countryside or in the Peruvian countryside, a woman, an indigenous woman who is harvesting the land or everything, as we can blame the, the big pullers. And the big pullers basically, basically incarnate the profound roots of this environmental and climate crisis. So that is the patriarchy, the colonialism, and the capitalism itself. So um, those, those features have made that in uh, our narratives, in our imagination, we separate what is bonded in nature, what is in reality bonded. That is like, I don't know, we have some differences and some um, and we separate, I don't know, humankind from nature, women from men, mm, emotion from from thinking and everything. So that's that way of thinking has led to the solution that they are proposing. Who the one, the people that incarnates capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy. Uh, so they keep separating everything that is not really separated. So they try to face only one symptom of the problem so uh, the problems of climate change do not rely on nature itself they rely on the ways that we are relating to nature so the problem of that is has that has been reduced to equivalent carbon is really a political problem of a political system uh, so the solution can be like that narrow we have to discuss the relations between humankind and nature and between human groups. We can't face, we can tackle climate crisis if we don't take into account social and environmental injustices that also this climate crisis is deepening. So these false solutions only take into account one little part of the problem. We can basically measure everything on carbon right now. We can measure your way of life, your way of eating, your way of transporting, but only as individual, not only taking into account like the whole system. And that's a whole problem. Not taking into, not thinking about everything that's going on, only talking about this little coin that you can, that allows people to put to limit nature to only one of its main ecological, well, not main, to one of their many ecological um, features. Uh, and that allows to put 
to limit it and to put owners to them, to a ecological function that is like the carbon cycle. Uh, and then if you can put owners, you can also put it into the market. And that's what we are doing right now. We're thinking on, well, or they are thinking on the climate crisis as an, yet another market opportunity. Rather thinking that on the planet, on people, they're thinking on how to make profit of this environmental crisis that's uh, affecting every one of us. What I heard from you is that a, essentially a binary model of thinking has reduced what is really a complex political problem that involves real people and real lives and real nature to a problem of a, a purely technical problem or a purely carbon-based problem, something that really reduces it um, and removes all the complexities that really are, um, are the heart of the issue, right? So it also sounds to me like what you're saying is that the same people who benefit from not only the things that created the climate crisis and the environmental crisis and everything, the same people who benefit from that are benefiting also from these false solutions. So they're really in a win-win situation um, where uh, the only losers, the only people who are losing out in all of these scenarios are the people, um, is wilderness, is life, is water, right? Is, is an interconnected way of living really. How come the people that has created the problem is the one that is coming with this new solution? So women are really going on the front line for redefining the approach of the climate crisis. What are some of the ways in which women are being impacted by false solutions? Well, I feel like line terror is one of the most important ones. There's also somehow like a political exclusion in their own communities. Because when they dare to talk about false solutions, well, they're just being so somehow mistreated and they're being um like not taken into account for this scenarios of discussion worldwide and, and everything. And I feel like there's a political affectation on women. There's also an economical affectation on women, but also, and this uh, I have been told several times, there's like uh, an indigenous women are really concerned about that because they feel like there is somehow like a spiritual erosion. And they know that the thing that has allowed indigenous communities to resist the colonizations after more than 500 years and keeping a lot of time their languages and their, their ways of life and everything has been their spiritual strength. But if they're starting to recognize themselves, in, I mean, indigenous communities, as carbon guardians, that's something that has never happened before, they feel like those spiritual values are being lost. And that threatens the, um, like a really structural part of the communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, this is also why it's not just um, simply recognizing <clears throat> the political rights of communities, or the economic rights of communities, local communities is not enough. It is very vital to recognize the spiritual and religious uh, rights the rights that people have to live, to continue their ways of life, their tr traditional practices of life is vital to managing the climate crisis and in fact, our environmental crisis, our economic crisis, all of it. Um, actually, uh, this leads 
beautifully into my next question, which is, can you tell us a bit about how how are people resisting these projects on the ground? What does resistance look like? This can be political resistance or cultural resistance. Give me anything. But what what are some of your favorite, uh, what are some of the most powerful moments of resistance you witnessed or you read about that you'd like to talk to us about today? Um, imply, I also think like the resistance from people on the ground is really important, not only in a material way, like the grassroots movements are not only important for what they're doing and to oppose things, but to show alternatives. And like to show that it's possible to grow food without thinking on carbon, to take care of forests without thinking of money, uh, taking care of the wild animal, the wilderness without thinking on money. I feel like that's also important when we talk about non-market solutions or non-market approach. And in that way, I think that it's a moment to think with in a really creative way. I mean, um, right now, we need all the creative, the creative, the creative, the creativity of peoples, of women, of indigenous uh, peoples, of local communities, of students, of researchers, of everyone worldwide, because we can all contribute to thinking ways of unraveling this whole mess, but also on proposing on our, on our ways. And people is doing so from art. People is doing so from research. People is doing so though is doing so also. And I think that's really really important from this spiritual resistance and this gathering for I don't know of indigenous women of indigenous people just like to try and heal the planet. I feel like something really powerful because we can't think of an irrationality without thinking that it has to be solid, and solid means also. Uh, acknowledging the power of spirituality, the need that this community, this indigenous community says to to have the spirits on our side. I know that might somehow sound esoteric or something, but that's a way that people has resisted. There's an example in here in Colombia where the Uwa community in the night is dance for 45 days and nights. And the Occidental Petroleum Company that had been going and that had found oil in their sacred places uh, just lost it. I mean, they had the studies and everything for the oil that they were going to extract, and then the oil got lost. Uh, so it might sound esoteric, but it's truly powerful, and it also helps to bond the communities that have been separated by these proposals of the system itself of the patriarchy of the capitalism of the colonialism so it helps bonds communities and i also feel like art is really important because you have to understand something to to act for something you don't only have to have it in your mind you also have to have it in your heart everyone the person that's harvesting their own food in the local the politician that is trying to promote a gender equality law in their own countries, the people that, that is advocating at the UN scenarios to show these false solutions as so we all need each other and we all need our languages. We need art, we need research, we need advocacy. We need a nature on our side. And I feel hopeful because I think that people's coming together. We are coming together and we will make a future possible for all forms of life. 
That was beautiful, Andrea. Thank you so much for speaking with us. That brings us to the end of the first episode. Join us in the next episode as we find out more about what went down at the UNFCCC Climate Change Conference in Bonn and hear from forest defenders who are implementing real solutions to climate change in different parts of the world. Thank you for listening. Roots of Resilience was produced by the Global Forest Coalition with support from Bread for the World. Our theme music is by the Garifuna Collective with permission from Stone Tree Records. Be sure to join us for more episodes of Roots and Resilience and visit our website at globalforestcoalition.org.